Welcome. Thanks so much for tuning in to What is Wellness. I am your host, Kristen O'Connor. I've been a private chef for the past 10 years, focusing heavily on wellness and helping actors and athletes achieve very specific body and health goals. And now I really set out on this quest to kind of excavate what actually is wellness, listening to as many expected and unexpected members of this very diverse community of experts. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, and leave comments. Today, I'm excited to chat with Emily Diadamo. Emily is a fourth-year medical student at the University of Bridgeport School of Naturopathic Medicine in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Her clinical focus can be broadly defined under the term precision medicine, in which she takes genomic, microbiome, and metabolomic data to employ personalized interventions to support the healing of current diseases, as well as prevent their future onset. Outside the clinic, you can find her restoring old clothing and furniture, stopping to identify a medicinal plant on a hike, so cool, and spending time in her community. Welcome, Emily. Hey, Emily, thanks so much for joining What is Wellness? Hi, Kristen, thanks for having me. So excited to chat. As we know, you are, well, almost a naturopathic doctor, <laughs> very, very well on your way. So how did you, how did you end up here? How did you get to this point? Yeah, I love this story because I feel like I've, in working with other soon-to-be NDs, I've learned that everyone has a very special reason to be there, which makes everyone a special asset to the profession. For me, um, I actually had no, not to say interest, but I didn't expect this for myself. I wasn't particularly a science-minded kid growing up. I was always more of a creative writer. I wanted to paint with my fingers. I wanted to like space out and just kind of feel life. And science was hard for me to grasp. And then I went to college and I majored in psychology and I loved it. I loved it so much because it just gave me a toolkit to view the world. I felt like it gave me words that I, I didn't have concepts for these feelings that were concrete and how to understand and relate to people. So I loved it. And I had some extra credit hours. So I decided to pick up a bioethics minor, which all of a sudden transformed my degree into debating these concepts of, of what it means to inhabit a human body ethically and morally and how, um, how to make decisions on behalf of not just your own body, but other, other people's bodies. And during that time, I picked up an internship. I was working out of St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx in a program called DISRIP. DISRIP stood for Delivery System Reform Incentive Payment. It was a really kind of um, complicated, complex, data-driven program on how to make insurance-based Medicaid patient care more patient-centered. So the idea was that we were going to transform care from being fee-for-service, where doctors get paid for all of the surgeries, implementations, things they do, and it's actually value-based. So we would track outcomes, and we would incentivize them by rewarding positive outcomes. So what we did was we actually we leaned really heavily on community-based organizations to uphold these initiatives. So I, as an intern, was a communications intern. And what I would do is I would travel around the Bronx and I would interview people who were touched by community-based organizations for the better in regards to their health. Um, so I spoke with, I mean, I have so many stories. I met people who, whose children were going to fail out of school because they had mold in their apartment and they were connected to a program called AirNYC that did a home inspection, identified the mold, removed it, and all of a sudden these kids are getting straight A's. Wow. Yeah. And I was going to ask you what types of organizations, but that's really interesting. Oh, yeah. I think, I mean, New York is such a special place because it really is so bootstraps. Um, it just creates an environment. The community, it, asking you shall receive in New York. I mean, there's a service for your need. But I met one patient, actually. He touched my life for the better, and we actually still keep in touch. And his story just really hit me. He was um, wrongfully convicted of a murder and sentenced to life in prison. And um, the person who actually 
committed the crime on his deathbed, uh, completely confessed. And so all of a sudden, his life was changed where he anticipated dying in prison and he was released. Wow. I have, ch- I have chills. Oh, I can't even. Yeah. What a special human being. He found um, Islam in the, in the process of being in prison um, and completely just had this spiritual overhaul in accepting what he thought was his fate. But then all of a sudden he was released and he was in a, a very severe type two diabetic. And so shortly after being released, he had his lower leg amputated and soon enough the was amputated. And both um, both legs, both legs. Wow. And I kind of interfaced with him after he'd found this community-based organization called Health People in the South Bronx, which uh, orchestrated group meetings for people who have chronic diseases. So the idea was that we teach each other. Mm -hmm. So he goes to group meetings for type two diabetics where they learn to eat, they learn to think, they learn to treat, they learn to survive. And um, now he is an advocate. And that's absolutely amazing because I mean, education is such a huge part of it. And also to have people in the room with you who have ex- are experiencing the same thing. And, you know, people, other people can look at his story and say, wow, you know, if we don't take care of ourselves and change the way that we eat and, you know, because they w- wouldn't know otherwise, this is what could happen. You know, you could lose your limbs. And I think that's such an incredible resource to have. Such a resource. I think community is such an underlooked form of medicine. And that, um, that entire experience from interviewing him to producing the the piece that was going to be disseminated throughout the program um, made me realize that I wanted to interact with people like him for the rest of my life. I wanted to, I wanted to be, I wanted to share his light. I wanted to sit in the light that I felt that he emitted. Wow. And so, you know, I graduated college and the internship unfortunately was an internship in a New York statewide program can't make a position for a kid like me. Uh, so I, I was torn for a bit and I worked in healthcare PR for a while. And I realized, um, you know, I'm really good at reading clinical research and, and sharing research with people, but my God, do I want to sit in a room with someone? So I did, I, um, applied to school I got accepted. And this is when you applied to naturopathic school? Yes. Okay. And, um, you know, that's an interesting kind of thing, too, because there was a moment where I was parsing out which direction to go in. And I was seriously considering um, getting a DO, a doctor of osteopathic medicine. And I had a real sit with myself. And I, um, you know, you know this because you know my father. Peter Diadamo and his father was a naturopath, James L. Diadamo. And I had a real sit with myself and I I thought, you know, what a gift to be surrounded by this kind of medicine, which really was what was existing in those community-based organizations. It's environmental, it's community-based, it's preventive, it's empathic. So, um, yeah, so I applied to naturopathic medical school picked up all my things in my little Brooklyn apartment and moved to Bridgeport, Connecticut. And I've been here for four years. That's such an incredible story. And, you know, you started to say that in the community that you were working is really what kind of what naturopathic medicine is. And, you know, what, what I interpret you meant by that is the kind of preventative side And what's interesting is I think that people don't really understand, you know, that piece of it. Can you, can you kind of explain also the difference between getting a DO, an MD and an ND? Totally. So now conventionally, the difference between a DO and an MD is just really two letters. Um, Curriculum is very similar, except in DO school, you are trained in what they call osteopathic manipulation therapy, which is, um, it's a modality of kind of manipulating the musculoskeletal system. It's not so much like chiropractic where it's high amplitude. 
high velocity, low amplitude, I believe, actually. But anyways, so there are slight variations, but um, naturopathic medical training is a four-year curriculum that does the same biomedical sciences. So there's anatomy, there's physiology, there's uh, pathology, histology, and then you have all of your kind of advanced ologies. So your endocrinology, your cardiology, et cetera. Um, there's physical exam, there's lab diagnostics, and then there are the kind of traditional naturopathic modalities. So I have, I mean, semesters on semesters of not only botanical medicine training, but botanical pharmacology, drug, herb, nutrient interactions, nutritional interventions. So not just dietetics, but also using nutraceuticals therapeutically on their own. So at more than dietary doses when indicated and when contraindicated, um, knowing those, knowing those distinctions. Yeah. And then there is, um, a large part of it is physical medicine. So naturopathic training involves something called hydrotherapy, which uses, um, water and the ability of water to transfer temperature to the body. So, um, you know, the concept of an athlete taking an ice bath to reduce inflammation after a game is hydrotherapy. And so, um, that's something I loved. And then also naturopathic manipulation therapy, which is, um, really the same as chiropractic, just the differences in the nomenclature. Interesting. Um, Yeah, it's been, I mean, it is actually so wild to see the body of training come to life because after the, all the rigorous didactic training, then you step into the clinic. And that's been, I mean, that's really, I feel like that's where people come to shine. It must be so exciting to take all that knowledge. And actually, I feel like... (laughs) I don't know if you feel this way, but sometimes I have this feeling where, um, you know, I, I've been gathering all this knowledge in my own brain, in, in my area of, of interest, which is, you know, not, I mean, I'm interested in, in naturopathy, but my study is food, obviously. Um, and then I turn around and, and when I'm in a situation of applying that, I'm kind of shocked at all that I know. Do you kind of have that where you, you know, you've been spending all this time studying? I mean, what you just explained is is really in-depth. I mean, that's, um, it's like what you're explaining is really understanding the mechanisms of the body and our systems the same way that a medical doctor does. However, you also are understanding the capacity of the environment, what we put in our bodies and how we interact with um, very specific things like hydrotherapy, et cetera, in order okay. to be preventative. And, um, I don't want to say curing, but like then treating, um, <laughs> yeah. which is really interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, and I, I tend to get a bit cerebral with these things. I will come home after a long day and just, wow, like that's wild. I mean, It's just interesting. You know, I think one of the things that I love about naturopathic, the kind of classical naturopathic intake. So that first patient encounter is, I mean, we spend probably an hour and a half and a lot of it is an interview. It's what's your job? What what kind of exposures do you have on the job? What is your living situation like? Do you smell dampness in your basement? What's your movement like? Does it hurt when you move? Kind of all of these things that go into what make you a human being? How do you function? What is your physiology like? And what is life like for you and your body and your mind? And so, I mean, you learn so much about people and then there are certain things that just become no brainers. And then there are certain things where you're like, I'm I'm gonna do the work for you and figure this out for you. I'm gonna help you kind of parse out what, you feel to be going awry in your body. But you know, some of them it's, I have bleeding gums. Okay, well, do you ever eat fruits that are colored that might have high vitamin C? No, I hate fruits, I don't like vegetables. Okay, maybe let's try that first. 
Mm. But then there are harder things where it's, you know, you actually start to use your diagnostic toolkit and you say, all right, let's like really dig in here. And that's both of those are equally as exciting. Yeah, I could see that. You had said to me that two people don't have the same, don't share the same disease as long as they have different habits, separate beliefs and varying levels of access to support, which I thought was incredibly fascinating. You know, we put, we put, we dump everything into these categories in life just to make sense of them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what I, what I have always understood because of your dad about holistic and naturopathic medicine is really that every single person is an individual. He, and your grandfather did the blood type diet. And that is starting to kind of like hone in and, and understand why we're different, and unique. And then there's the genotyping. And then it's what you're saying, right? It's going in and understanding what every individual's actual experience is. You know, I, I'm not sure if you know this, but I've had like a million knee surgeries and I have, I struggle with pain every day of my life. I have a knee replacement and I've had a revision knee replacement already. So it's been an extensive um, situation for my body to cope with. And what I have loved about pursuing holistic medicine and, and naturopathic approach to healing is that I get to be heard on all of those levels instead of going, and I love my orthopedics. I love them. Um, but they're trained to, and I know this, they're trained to medicate or treat right in terms of operation or like some kind of procedural situation. And in the past, when I've gone to your dad, you know, he does an analysis of my the health of my cells and, you know, we're talking about food, we're talking about movement, we're talking about all these different things. And as much as, yes, I still have pain every day, but I know the health of my body, given being under anesthesia and having had 17 surgeries would wow. be wrecked. My body, you know, is still healthy. You know, I'm still strong. I still have, I 100% believe that I have been so fortunate. And I do think it's fortunate. I do think it's privileged to have access to somebody amazing, like your family and like what you're pursuing at the end of the day. Like, I love how you're talking about how we can translate this to community. Right. So there's this interesting line. I know I'm kind of going off on this tangent, but there's this interesting line of helping people understand the power that they can have as a community and also educating people on their individuality and how to address the fact that like, like you said, no two people have the same disease. Right. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Especially, you know, we just went through this pandemic, right? Where, where COVID is this one virus, but we're seeing it play out in infinite ways in different people's bodies. Absolutely. And I think too, it's um, when you face someone in a room for the first time, when you meet them, and again, I, I tell you this, I tend to get really heady, like, and I, I explain to people and sometimes they're just sort of like, you know, all right, Emily, but you know, <laughs> in the past two years, I have for the first time in my life ever sat down with people, strangers, and, and, and they've told me everything about them and they've put in a lot of trust with me. And that doesn't just happen. That happens with the, you know, such a fine communication style such a fine extension of yourself, such a fine um, abandoning of ego at the door. One of the ways that you can really, I guess you could say, help someone really grasp this concept of their own bodily uniqueness is, is just that. I mean, there's just statistically no way that two people are eating the same meals every day. They're using the same face wash. They are going to the same exercise class, taking the same medications, and and they have the same genes. There are infinite ways that you can look at all the different ways that we are, as biologic systems, unique. And then on the flip side, there's also this element of community, which is putting that aside. What do we have in common? And why is that good for us? Mm -hmm. Why is that medicine to begin with? Why is why is putting a number of diabetics in a room together to share their experiences, to hold space for one another, and to actually not involve a physician, why is that healing? And um, 
I think the intersection, I love nuance. So the intersection of those two kind of radically opposite ideas, I think blends very nicely into a, a philosophy of patient centeredness. It's not physician centeredness. I always think that I want, I want people to learn from me. I don't want them to need me. You know, ideally they don't, they don't need me. They get the toolkit and then they always can, I'm a resource, but they can make decisions for their health on their own once they are given the education to act on them. Right. I, I do feel a hundred percent that when you go to a naturopathic doctor, especially amazing ones like you and your family, you do walk away with a tool. You are educated. You are empowered as a patient. But for your for yourself, but I always picture you guys as like walking around with this superpower <laughs> because it's really true. I think about the limitations of traditional medicine and my brother's a, a medical doctor, as you know, and he's amazing. And he, ha he has a very strong interest in naturopathic medicine, holistic medicine, how food influences our bodies and our diet. So he's a little bit different, I think, than a lot of MDs. It, to be able to, and I feel like because of the education that I've been really fortunate enough to get, and mostly because it's something that I've been so passionate about, love pursuing and love listening to, you know, I've been able to do it on a very micro level with my friends and my clients. You know, when, when my clients come to me and they have a cold or they have um, whatever going on, I mean, I certainly make it clear that I'm not a naturopathic doctor or a nutritionist or diet, anything but I know how to boost their immune system through food, right? right? If, and if nothing else, and so, so I feel like I have this teeny tiny, like micro dose of that superpower, <laughs> just, just by osmosis, like just by being around so much. I think, I mean, and that's the whole idea, right? Is that our ancestors knew, um, there is this concept in like traditional naturopathic medicine, it's this concept called instinctual dowsing. Mm. Um, instinctual dowsing kind of somehow animals in the wild and we assume through trial and unfortunate error, they know not to eat deadly nightshade. They just know. Yeah. I don't know if it's the smell. I don't know if it's the look. They just know. And our ancestors were instinctual dowsers. They knew that eating tons and tons of garlic when you're sick for some reason they didn't know the biochemistry. They didn't know the physiology or the pharmacology. They just knew it worked. And we've kind of lost touch with that instinctual dowsing because I think, I mean, there's so many reasons, but I, I still think that just by surrounding ourselves with information and people that have acquired that information everyone should be able to care for themselves when they have a minor cold at home. And it's like, I love that you're sharing that with people because that keeps them out of the office. And that's, yeah, it's parallels. I think just like our ancestral, how far we've gotten from nature and from the earth. Right. You look at groups of society who are still more connected to the earth. A, an extreme example is the Kogi tribe and how in South America and how, you know, they, have really tried to not even interact with modern society as much as they could, but they actually, you know, several years ago kind of came down from their community because they noticed changes in the environment. In their culture, people live to into their late 90s, hundreds, and they don't have anything modern there at all. Right. And why is that? Because they're so deeply in tuned with themselves, with nature, with their community. And it's kind of like that merging that you're talking about between individuality and community and how coming together, it could be like the most powerful thing, right? Because we've gotten so far from that, that we've gotten to the point that we don't even think about where our food comes from. Our kids, shockingly, like people have shown like a little kid a tomato, right? In a kindergarten no. classroom and they don't, they can't identify it. And so we've gotten so far from, from nature, from knowing where food comes from, and also just listening to our bodies, right? A lot of people just pile whatever they want into their bodies at whatever volume and just to make it feel good or, or taste good or whatever it is without understanding that there's this other huge component 
of how you feel as a reaction to that. So instead of being like, oh, I just ate a cheeseburger and I feel bloated and sick and heavy and all these uncomfortable things, they just say, oh, I feel bloated and and go to the doctor, right? And then get a medication. Whereas you look at it and you say, is your body really equipped to handle that hamburger? Yes. And it's interesting when you, when you mentioned just like piling on things, my first instinct too is people, I think, especially recently, there's this growing trend of like reading about a supplement or a nutraceutical product and just taking it. And that is another kind of caveat of like, what is, what is a reasonable, what is reasonable for one to take on? And what I love about being a naturopathic physician is that I always say, leave it to me. Like I have patients that come in and they, you know, bags of supplements. And it's like, why do you take that one? She's like, I don't know. I saw it on Reddit. And like, you know, I'm, I'm like, let's, let's get you off those because I mean, you're throwing a bowl of spaghetti at the wall to see if any of the noodles stick and maybe a couple of them do, but it's tough. I think a lot of times people kind of vacillate from these two extremes of just really almost hyper, hyper vigilance. And, um, then a complete, you know, disregard for patterns that are happening in their body. So eating a hamburger and not really saying, Oh, I have some acid reflux because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think that's one of the best ways to exist is to just be a little pin on the map where it says, come here when you need knowledge, I can guide you. My peers can guide you. You should know how to take care of your cold, but let's actually download some of your genomic data. Let's look at your microbiome and let's actually do something that's a little more precise than just taking a supplement that you read about on Reddit because you want to get rid of your migraines. Right. So um, I I do like being that kind of touchstone. I think that's one of my favorite places to exist. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. That is an incredible place to exist. You know, talking about these different things, like how to take care of a cold or, you know, gut microbiome, Are there, even though we do know, of course, that there are, I mean, infinite specifics in terms of every individual, are there certain things that you would guide kind of the general population on in terms of health and wellness and really staying on track with their bodies? Yeah. I mean, it, I, my first thing, my first thought is, um, it becomes fiber, but then I think actually for people with inflammatory bowel diseases, you want to limit fiber intake because it can be quite corrosive. I w- I honestly think the basics, I really have seen such marvelous outcomes of blood type diet, blood type specific food intake, blood type specific stress regulation. Mm. So we know there are slight variances between the blood types as far as stress goes. And um, stress is the most ubiquitous perturbant to, I would say, well-being, because it is something that does connect us all. And there are differences amongst the way that the blood types exist in stressful bodies and in stressful times. I mean, um, so like for a blood type O, um, studies have found that if you are a blood type O, you also have lower levels of an enzyme called platelet MAO or mm. monoaminoxidase, which is involved in the breakdown of um, monoamines. So dopamine, serotonin, or dopamine, epinephrine, and norepinephrine. And um, when this is slow, these stress hormones back up. So for a blood type O, stress in the body is harder to shake at baseline. And um, then there's the kind of reframing of it, which says you have higher levels of these stress hormones, high intensity exercise is going to be a good way for you to put them to good use. Then on the flip side, someone like me, a blood type A, um, 
we don't have that issue with bottlenecking these stress hormones, but the issue is in cortisol. So high intensity exercise is actually going to be perceived as more of a stressor on my body. So things like Tai Chi, Qigong, hiking, I love. So I think the kind of generalities I would make are, are you sleeping? Are you pooping? How much are you stressing and what are you doing about it? What are your thoughts like? Are you nice to yourself inside of your head? What do you eat? Are you loving? Are you loved? The basics. And then, of course, once I say, all right, those are checked, you dive deeper. But um, I think that I think for most people, those are not going to be checked. Oh, 100 percent. And they vary. They vary. It's really interesting because when I, I mean, I obviously, I, again, like I do not have the knowledge that you have, of course, but when I work with a client, I, I always want to know like how they're pooping <laughs> Oh my gosh. or like, or like passing gas, because I know as a chef, I can learn a lot from that in terms of how my food is impacting them. And it's, it's really funny, but like, I have asked that question quite a lot. And some of my clients are super open with me and some are not, but it really does help me reframe how I can approach their health um, just by figuring that out. I am extremely fascinated by gut microbiome. Um, You know, back, I don't even know, years ago, I want to say it was five or six years ago, your dad did my first gut microbiome test on me. And I had a bunch of like, I, there's ulcerative colitis in my family. And so there were a couple of markers in my gut microbiome that were kind of like, not cool, like danger, not dangerous, but you know, they were alarming. And so I did little things like I had, um, to have like a teaspoon of honey with some essential oils on it. And then I had pomegranate juice. Like there were these funky little things and within three weeks they were gone which is just like so incredible. And I try to explain to people how powerful that can be if you're in the right hands, like really that's the difference. Like you can get a microbiome study and, and, and it not do anything for you. But if you're in the right hands for someone to evaluate that, it's such a tremendous resource. But, you know, for those of us who, again, like don't necessarily have access to figuring out our own specifics and all of that, because it is, you know, a privilege again, to be able to do that. Are there certain things that, that people can do to really, to help diversify that gut microbiome and to help them have a healthier gut bacteria? Oh yeah. There's, um, there's so many ways you can act on it. And, you know, you make a really good point, which is that you took a, what, a teaspoon of honey with some oils. Yeah. You didn't like a lot of time we jump to the probiotic pill with like thousands and thousands of colony forming units thinking that that's going to be the thing that helps out. But really you want to actually, it's a little, it's not that it's more complicated. It's just, there's a little more finesse involved in really getting a good diverse microbiome. It's not, it's not bombing the system with a ton of a probiotic, but it's also not taking a ton of antimicrobial herbs or you know, just completely eradicating it. It there really becomes a fine, beautiful balance when you actually start to consume some of the nutrients that feed the good guys, and also the nutrients that support the secondary good guys. So the good guys that don't necessarily do good things, but they remove bad guys. So they outcompete bugs that we would say are not desirable or dysbiotic. So first instinct is like dietary polyphenols. Hmm. So um, that would be your blueberries, your raspberries, your pomegranate. Dark dark chocolate. Totally. Kind of these like polyphenols are awesome food source for a bug called Acromansia municifila, which is a mucin degrading species in the gut. It's a leanness associated bug. And it's, I mean, nearly undetectable in like a huge population of Americans. Why? Because a lot of us don't eat berries and a lot of us don't drink green tea and eat dark, non hyper sugared chocolate. Um, So Acromansia is mucin degrading in that it actually chows on the kind of mucus lining of the gut, which you would think is like, why would you want that? But the act of 
eating it actually signals to the cells underneath that mucus to make more. So it leads to a very healthy, a very strong, very supple mucus lining of the gut, which is in itself very protective, kind of secures the immune system away. Um, And then there's some kind of interesting metabolic aspects of acromanzia that the literature hasn't really entirely parsed out, but it seems to be that people with um, substantial amounts of acromanzia tend to be more insulin sensitive, tend to have lower visceral and subcutaneous uh, fat or adipose tissue and tend to um, overall have like a slightly more, I would say, uh, adaptive metabolic profile. Um, And then there are other things. I mean, there are your butyrate producing species. Butyrate is in like butter and ghee. Butyrate is a wonderful kind of inflammatory, anti-inflammatory molecule in the gut. And you can support that again with those polyphenols. And I would say polyphenols, final answer for. (laughs) I love that. I love the process of your brain just now. That was so cool to watch (laughs) and to listen to, I hope. So I'm like putting together a meal right now as you speak. And it's really simple, but I'm wondering if this checks some boxes because the other thing that I was thinking, but with gut bacteria, isn't it? isn't it helpful to have a diversity of nutrient intake for a health, like, so that you're not eating the exact same thing all the time? Totally. It's, you kind of want to keep bugs on their toes. So here's my meal for you from, from what you just said. (laughs) Um, So I'm thinking, I'm thinking a breakfast with oatmeal. Um, and then, uh, cause I do my oatmeal. I always put a a teaspoon of ghee in my oatmeal at the end. Cause I love how it tastes. And then putting some cocoa powder in it because that's non-sugar. It's just the fiber, right? right? And the polyphenols. And then topping it with some walnut butter and uh, blueberries. Dude, that sounds amazing. And flaxseed. Don't forget the flaxseed. I love flax. (laughs) There are so many things in there that just make it, again, like you said, so diverse. Like, I mean, the walnuts, again, walnuts are one of the best ways to feed acromanzia. Um, But but walnuts are an interesting way of actually feeding the bugs that get rid of the bad boys. Um, So walnuts can get rid of a bug called colincella, which is associated with um, leaky gut. Yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah. um, Colincella is an interesting one. Right now, the understanding of it is that it kind of eats the little button that holds together two intestinal cells. Hmm. When you get away at that button... the the two sides become a little bit looser and then all of a sudden food-based molecules, but also like intestinal bacteria can kind of scoot through what should be a very sealed gut lining and um, infiltrate into your immune system. So we want to keep that tight. So um, walnuts are really super good for that. You also mentioned oats, which I love because oats are really high in beta-glucans, which, um, are excellent. I mean, they're such a wonderful source of soluble fiber. They also, I mean, studies have shown that moderate consumption of oat beta-glucans can lower cholesterol. Um, Also, beta-glucans are nice immunomodulators. So um, they are also present in mushrooms. So a lot of the times when we hear about mushrooms being good for the immune system, we're actually talking about their beta-glucan content. Hmm. Um, I love that meal. You'll have to send me a picture. I will definitely. Mushrooms are such a huge thing right now too. I mean, I'm a little bit obsessed. I'm not going to lie from, you know, going to nature path. I've been doing my talkie mushroom for a long time and I love cooking. I know my talkie mushroom can be expensive, but when you slice it and sear it in some ghee, it honestly tastes like a steak. I'm not even kidding. It's so buttery and delicious. And I like tell people that all the time. If you're going to spend money on a steak, you can spend money on my talkie mushroom. It's a lot less. <laughs> and so it's true. so, so, so good. Can, can you tell me a little bit about mushrooms and if you yeah. agree that they're special? I think they're special. I mean, <laughs> sometimes I make this joke that, you know, we should really respect mushrooms because they are very intelligent and they are like two steps away from evolving to be better than us. <laughs> but 
I love mushrooms. I, I mean, I wrote my thesis actually for naturopathic medical school on on a lectin in your typical conventional silver dollar white button mushroom, which I had such a blast writing this paper, I tell you. <laughs> oh my gosh. And it's just, you know, glycobiology is such an ugly thing to write because it's just a bunch of glycomic words that are really tough to parse out. Um, but yeah, so white button mushrooms have a lectin called agaricus bisporus lectin. That's just, that's the Latin name for white button mushroom. And this lectin looks a lot like the blood type A antigen. So the, the actual sugar that makes a blood cell an A. Hmm. And um, interestingly enough, there was a guy in the 50s, his name was George Springer. And he noticed that a lot of cancers look a lot like blood type A sugars. So cancerous cells have uh, a surface antigen that looks deceptively like a blood type A antigen. There was this antigen that was first found in the 20s by two researchers called Thompson and Friedenrich. And so they called it the Thompson-Friedenrich antigen. And now there's an enormous body of literature about how consumption of dietary lectins that mimic this Thompson-Friedenrich antigen can actually stimulate our own immune cells to recognize these antigens as being foreign. So consuming white button mushrooms with that high agaricus bisporus lectin content can actually kind of trick your immune system to better recognize those polyp cells, cancerous cells. It's assuming these are Thompson-Friedenrich positive cells, but yeah, that was a fun one that was an interesting foray. And then I would say as far as everyday use, mushrooms, again, have those beta glucans, which um, we call them immunostimulating, because they kind of tell your immune cells, specifically your natural killer cells, but also cells called macrophages, which are natural killer cells are kind of like, they'll just go around and kill anything that they see if it's bad. A macrophage will actually recognize a uh, a molecule is foreign and just literally eat it and then digest it. So both you want on your team and sometimes they need a little kick in the pants. So <laughs> have been postulated to be mobilizers of those immune cells. And then I mean, mushrooms are just, there's fiber content in them. Chitin is really an interesting prebiotic. I think they're so cool. And then you kind of get into like the adaptogenic elements of different mushrooms. And I mean, lion's mane mushroom, which is the kind of kind of crazy, beautiful, luscious yeah. hair one. Yeah. Um, that one has been found to be an amazing stimulator of nerve growth factor as well as brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So um, enhancing kind of synaptic connections or connections between brain cells. I mean, I love cordyceps. Cordyceps coffee is like amazing. If you've ever had that. I haven't. It is really just quite energizing. But is there a, is there a brand that you like? Not that. Uh, yeah. I mean, this isn't um, not an, not an endorsement, but I remember my first year of school, I had a classmate who was like, you know, you got to try this, this mushroom coffee. And I was like all about it. And it was uh, four sigmatic. Yeah. I've, I've actually, I've, I've used those with my client too. I used to make, I used to try to get him to switch from coffee to four sigmatic because <laughs> he's a type O. I mean, I am too. And I love coffee, but yeah. Coffee is a tough one because I, you know, again, there's such a culture. I used to work in a coffee shop. Coffee is a culture. It's the smelling, the tasting, the processing, the sourcing. Yeah. Like all of it is so wrapped up in the consumption of it that it's a tough one for people to break. It's true. It's, and, and it's a lot about ritual and tradition. Yeah. And, you know, I, I feel that way about dark chocolate. I took a course in chocolate making and became a certified bean to bar chocolate maker. And through that course, we had to really understand the terroir, like where the chocolate's grown, how the, the difference in the cacao pod in terms of smell, taste, you know, all of the flavor profiles, et cetera. And it becomes something that you then, when you taste the chocolate, you're experiencing it as if like, it's a fine wine or something, you know, you're, you're, and you enjoy it more and you're more mindful about it when you know those things. And I feel like people have that with 
um, with coffee, but you can also have that with tea. I mean, I know I sound like a total dork right now saying that, but you can make tea a rich. I love the, um, I forget what it's called, but it's the toasted rice matcha. Oh, Jen Micha. Yes. Jen Micha. I love that. And like, if you buy it in bulk, you know, you can put it in your little thing and steep it. And like there, you know, it's a tradition in Japan, but you know, we haven't really inhabited that as much, but it's, it's, it's actually obviously better for all types, but I know A's can have coffee, which is nice. It is nice. I will say. (laughs) Um, I know, I know we've been chatting for a while now. Um, I want to quickly ask you about weight loss, because this is something that everybody asks me about on a continuous basis. I am not the doctor here. (laughs) So all I can do is provide help in terms of, you know, making great recipes that taste good, that are also super healthy. And I have a conflicting feeling about weight loss. Like to me, what I've been trying to, I've been trying to change my own language around it with friends and with clients that it really, the emphasis really should be more on the capability of your body and the healthier that you are at the core, the more you're capable of enjoying your life, like feeling really good, having the energy to do what you need to do, et cetera. And that those things are more important, but you know, then there's a fine balance of, you know, being able to get to a healthy weight. Right. So what, what is your take on that from your perspective and from, you know, where, you know, your education? Totally. So for me as a clinician, I practice with a framework called health at every size, which is kind of like a body neutral way of being a physician, um, which doesn't negate the fact that excess adipose or fat tissue can be detrimental to one's health, but it doesn't prioritize weight loss in the setting of of proper health. So I would say, I mean, I, I grew up in a generation where it was like, I would read at the grocery store us weekly and they would just, you know, slam the latest celebrity for going to the beach and having cellulite. So I don't know a single person right now who doesn't have somewhat of a distorted and conflicted relationship with their body. And I'm sensitive to that. I'm, I'm very sensitive to that. But at the same time, I also know physiologically, sometimes excess weight can be a burden not only metabolically, but also on your joints, on your psyche, on, you know, your cardiovascular system, because I mean, there are some kind of overlooked aspects of having too much fat tissue, but one of them is the more fat tissue you have, the more blood vessels you require to supply it. And the more blood vessels you have supplying it, it increases something called vascular resistance, which then unfortunately the product of that is that it, 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 increases blood pressure because you're fighting against a harder, a harder bed. Um, so there are associations that we have to be mindful of, but for me, what I do, um, a lot of times is, and I struggle with this because I think right now there's a very big press for weight loss being calories in calories out and that's yeah. it. Um, but I simply just don't subscribe to that. I think that you know, excess restriction is going to metabolically adapt. The best thing you can do is find a diet that's not really a diet. It's just an eating style that is nutritionally advantageous for your specific genomic needs. So does it fit well with your blood type? If you have access to someone that can interpret your genes, do you have certain mutations in, 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 fatty acid transportation or carbohydrate metabolism, utilization, and then kind of hormonally, are you insulin sensitive? Are you able to take blood sugar and put it in your cells? Or for some reason, is that process dampened, which happens a lot, unfortunately. So what, what do you do in that case? Honestly, the best thing you can do for insulin resistance Unfortunately, the exact mechanism of why it happens for a lot of people isn't quite elucidated. You can kind of parse out a cause. So one of the biggest causes of insulin resistance in, say, women my age, so in like the reproductive years, is something called PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. And that is, I mean, very very common. So if you can work on correcting the endocrine imbalances as well as kind of 
using nutraceuticals, looking into the genomics and the microbiome as well, kind of looking again, like calling back to the acromansia we were talking about previously, Mm -hmm. that studies have shown that's helped with insulin sensitivity. So it's all about adjusting a terrain and then outside of the scope of physiology and nutritional pharmacology, there's mindset. Mindset is enormous and um, not to be understated. So interestingly enough, um, I was listening to a podcast recently and there was an interview of a, a Yale psychology researcher. Her name is leaving me, but she led a, a study that interviewed women who cleaned houses for a living. And, you know, cleaning houses is just about the most physically demanding job one can do. I mean, you are like using your body for all hours of the day. And a lot of these women didn't go home and they didn't, they they didn't exercise when they got home. So interviewers asked them, what do you think of your activity level? And the ones who said, I'm not active, I'm not active at all they would take and they would say, you know, actually you're burning a ton of calories just by simply going to work. Mm -hmm. And that mindset adjustment resulted in a profound weight loss for these women, (laughs) for those who had weight to lose. So there is some sort of mental blockade that can exist for a lot of people when it comes to something as sensitive as body weight. I've Um, seen that. I've seen that over and over again. And it's so interesting because I, I, I haven't explored it in that specific way, but in terms of the self-punishing kind of aspect of it, um, you know, I've noticed that when people are very punitive with themselves, like calling themselves fat or calling themselves things that aren't kind, like you, you said this at the beginning of the podcast, like how, how you speak to yourself, like, this is one of the things, like, are you kind to yourself? Right. So, um, you know, looking at yourself and being you know, self-deprecating and then, and then not just that, but also how you eat food. So, um, I mean, I know a lot of people, if they have, you know, pizza one night and they overindulge in pizza, then they really are, are mad at themselves and punishing and saying, you know, I'm this, I'm that really horrible things you would never say to anyone else. Um, and, and I feel that those people, not just feel, but I've kind of seen those, those people definitely hold on to weight more. And one of the things that I've talked to, um, my clients about recently is, you know, really being able to let go, like, like, you know, doing the best that you can for most of your day and week and whatever, in terms of making great choices and the times that you need a huge piece of chocolate cake, eat it and be happy about it. Um, and I do think that has a huge impact on your body's response to that food. And maybe it's as simple as stress, right? Maybe that stress makes you hold on to the weight. I don't know the physiological reason, but I have definitely seen that. I, I, yeah, I, mindset is just one of these interesting things that it was really only after I felt like, okay, I understand pharmacology, I understand physiology, I understand these things. And I was like, oh, wow. Half of the time, not half of the time, but a lot of the times it doesn't matter because if the mindset isn't there, if you're not orienting yourself towards growth, you're going to hold yourself back. And I think um, that's really hard to access from someone in, you know, a 15 minute checkup visit, a yearly physical. It's so hard to get in with someone on that. But that's where the education component comes in. It is, you know, that's where the, the checking in on the basics come in. Because again, it's like, you can, you can bang on the door of physiology, but if someone's thoughts are hurting themselves, that's only going to keep happening. So that's always, again, I'll say this again. I, I'm very sensitive when it comes to weight, weight loss, fat loss, because I know how detrimental a negative mindset can be. Mm -hmm. I think there are ways to be successful. I have seen it time and time again. I, I just think, um, there has to be a paradigm shift where there does 
Yeah. And I agree with you, you know, the calorie in calorie out thing to me, I I've had, because in my career, I have helped people put on tons of weight for a movie or lose weight for a movie or whatever, or recover from an injury as an athlete or whatever. Um, and you know, my last client was on a film and wanted to like lose weight in between, like, like we took a break for COVID or not took a break. We were forced to be on a break for COVID and then went back and he wanted to lose weight in between. And so he wanted to be on a restrictive 1200 calorie diet. And so I calculated everything. I, I was resistant to it at first. And I was like, I don't want to count these calories, but, and then I did it. But for me, the reality is I also know him really well. And I know just like any other human being, when you're restricting calories, the mentality, a, the mentality around restricting calories makes you just want to eat more because you're human and you ultimately want what you can't have no matter what hands down fundamental. And then the second thing is I don't believe that, like I was thinking about how many calories I eat a day. And if I start adding it up, it's probably going to be more than what people think, given that I'm not, you know, I'm I'm a small person, Mm -hmm. but I don't restrict fat. I eat a lot of fat. I eat lots of olive oil. I put ghee on everything. I have nut butters. I eat chocolate, dark, I 85% dark chocolate every day. You know, I eat meat. I'm typo. So I eat meat and not in excess, but like, these are things that I don't feel like if I added it up, the total would give me what I think is a false impression of what I'm actually feeding my body. Mm -hmm. And that shift in thought process around, you know, combining the, um, mentality, which by the way, I struggle with food a hundred percent and be, I'm punitive with myself. Like, I'm not going to say I'm just like, yeah, I mean, I don't think you can be female, especially males too, but female, especially, and not be constantly hypercritical of your, it's very, very, very hard. Um, Oh yeah. But to really start supporting each other again, it's the community and the individuality to start supporting each other and be like, Hey, listen, you know, let's focus on getting healthy on making really good choices for you, listening to your body and transforming that into a great, healthy lifestyle. Totally. Absolutely. I think that, I mean, that's the best way to do it. And I'm, I'm actually, I'm so glad we went in this direction because I do think that what it is like to be in a body, what it is like to experience punishment, what it is like to experience punishment at the hands of yourself. These are kind of uncomfortable topics that I know when I was growing up and I simply just through osmosis, I would just be in the grocery store and I would see these things. It was so um, insidious, but I think growing up, if someone had just told me, Hey, me too. Oh, the weight I would have felt off my chest. Totally. No, absolutely. And I see, I see the response, like, you know, when people experience severe trauma in their life and, you know, the, the reaction is to lean into food and to use that to soothe. Right. And, and that's the trauma, that's the trauma. And then, and then, and then your body naturally holds onto it more because you're not processing. It makes sense logically. Right. And I don't know, again, the physiological response, but Yeah. It also does make sense physiologically because in times of trauma, traumatic times, we trigger a stress response. Our main stress hormone is cortisol. Cortisol is remarkable for, I mean, cases of what they call hypercortisolism is defined as something called Cushingoid body habitus, where it's, you know, people who have very, very high cortisol, I'm talking like a pituitary tumor secreting just exorbitant amounts end up having kind of an apple shape. So they hold a lot of central uh, fat and also in the face, they'll get a stressed out face, Mm. moon shaped faces, as they say, but we see this subclinically. So cortisol can store that tough to lose fat. And it's only really once you de-stress lower that cortisol that you might potentially start to see that shift. And, um, you know, stress is really at, we are so stressed. (laughs) We are so stressed. We are constantly exposed to screens. I mean, simply the act of maintaining a mental 
concept of what time it is all the time throughout the day is so taxing um, that I do think that medicine should be as radical as the things which it is up against right now. So, you know, health at every size, body neutrality, where can you find health and where can you find self-acceptance? And then I think outcomes just skyrocket from there. Yeah. It's a matter of combining all of those things and that you've been talking about in terms of identifying emotionally where, like how and where these emotions are being stored, you know, getting back into your body and listening to your body and then feeding it properly again, despite whatever your, whether your trauma is what's on the news or your trauma is what's in your heart or what you're experiencing with somebody else or something terrible that happened to you or a family member. They're all, you know, they're all processed in your body in a unique way. Right. And so whether it's gaining weight, losing weight, or stress that is having a ripple effect on your adrenals or your gut or whatever migraines, you know, whatever way you, your body has a unique experience of expressing that stress. Oh, um, absolutely. yeah. I, but identifying it, I think is it's okay to talk about these things. Like, I, I think that th- that's the community part of it. It's just like, say it out loud and it helps you move on and it helps you heal and it helps you find strategies to heal and, and to get better. Okay. I think the second we find out that we're not alone in our in what we struggle with internally, a light starts to shine through. I mean, yeah, and I think there's a lot of self-blame. Like, you know, I know people who, uh, you know, I know we keep going back to this or I keep going back to the weight thing because, you know, it is a bit taboo to talk about, but in a way, like it's still the secret struggle. You know, I have people that come to me that are, that feel that they're overweight you know, they don't talk about it and they just secretly blame themselves. And then, you know, it becomes this whole vicious cycle because then they don't want to talk about the food. And then that's a secret. And then it's just this whole difficult thing. And, you know, it's interesting. You kind of hearkened on this point earlier, but one of my favorite authors in the sphere of redefining our relationship with food is a woman named Janine Roth. Mm. She wrote a book called, uh, I always butcher the name. It's called When You Eat at the Refrigerator, Pull Up a Chair. <laughs> and it's all about, it's like, if you're going to eat at the refrigerator, it's quite literally, if you're going to eat at the refrigerator, sit down and do it. Sit down and commit to it and enjoy it. <laughs> um, she always makes a point, says, for every restriction, there is an equal and opposite binge. And you made that point earlier, which is that restriction is the enemy of, you know, resilience. It's the enemy of consistency. Why? Because the second you restrict something, it becomes seductive. Everyone always says practice an 80-20 diet. Why? I don't know. Just do it. But it actually turns out that really, like, statistically speaking, the difference between following a nutritional plan, 80% and 100% is kind of negligible. So leave space for that birthday party and leave space for going to the restaurant it takes three months to get a reservation for. And you're so excited to try the pasta. And enjoy it. And enjoy it. It's going to be so much easier to digest, literally. And it's so much easier to then go back and do that 80%, like right on point, because you know that like, it's the whole thing of, of feeling, I feel like it's this whole mentality of feeling like the never, it, it will never happen. I can never have a bite of cheese again. I can right. never have this. And it's like, no, 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 let's not be insane. Do the best you can and then have the piece of pizza right. or like the, the whole pizza once a month. I don't know, whatever, whatever it is you need to have. <laughs> I, I think that, um, it's such a source of freedom because food again is a way that we connect And the second we remove connection from food, it it can get a little bit hairy. You know, it can get, there can be shame. There can be um, hurriedness. We can get hasty. Some people will just do it all in private. And it just, you have to remember it's celebratory just as much as moving your body is just as much as 
sleeping is. These things are fundamentals for a reason. Yep, absolutely. Um, Well, Emily, I really appreciate you being on here today. And my last question is what I ask everybody at the end of my podcast, which is what is wellness to you? Oh, what is wellness? (laughs) That's a great one. Wellness is landing in your body and feeling good about it. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I would say because everyone's got a different body. Everyone's got a different feeling good. But wellness is a process. It's not so much a destination. So long as you're on the road, it should feel good. That is amazing. Thank you. I love that. <laughs> Thank you, Kristen. This has been a blast. Thanks, Emily. And thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, share, all those wonderful things. We really appreciate your support. Have a great day.